Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from John's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I was talking about when I said, The one coming after me outranks me because he existed before me. I myself did not know who he was, but I came baptizing with water so that he would be revealed to Israel. John also testified, I saw the Spirit descend like a dove from heaven and remain on him. I myself did not recognize him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, The one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this myself and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day John was standing there again with two of his disciples. When John saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned around and saw them following him, he asked, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He told them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. They stayed with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his own brother, Simon, and say to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated, the Christ. This is the gospel of our Lord. We pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. Well, the bad news is that the Packers season is over. The worst news is that now we have to endure month after month of speculation over where Aaron Rodgers will be playing or not playing next year. But in spite of the bad news, there is good news. The church's risen Savior's season is not over, far from it. As we said before, we are in the season of epiphany, the season of revealing, of shedding light on mysteries that we could have never learned by ourselves. Like last week when we studied the, the Magi and we saw how that baby was born not only to be the Savior of Israel, but to be the Savior of Gentiles like us. We need revelation in so many areas, don't we? We need God to reveal to us um, where this world came from. We could never know that on our own. No scientist can study where our world came from. The best they can do is come up with their theories. Or how about where we go when we die? Who can testify to us about that? What, what scientific test could you run that could prove where people go when their hearts stop beating? Only God can reveal those things to us. And the same is true of the, the phrase, or, or better, the title that we're going to look at this morning, the Lamb of God. Now, what sense does that title make? If it weren't for God's word, if it weren't for the Holy Spirit revealing to us what the, the meaning of that title was, it would make about as much sense to call Jesus the Lamb of God as if I were to point at you and say, you cow, you sheep, you horse, you chicken, or any other barnyard animal. What sense would that make? Calling Jesus the Lamb of God, what does that mean? Well, it's very important that we understand this title because this title, Lamb of God, leads us to the very heart and center 
of Christianity. Our lesson has us catching up with John the Baptist as he's still out in the wilderness at Bethany beyond the Jordan, teaching and preaching and baptizing. But this day before, in the section right before our text, he finds himself under interrogation by some men from Jerusalem. You see, the the Jewish leaders were very jealous of John the Baptist's popularity. They wanted the people to come and listen to them. Instead, they were going out into the wilderness to listen to John and be baptized by him. And so they tried to discredit him by, well, smearing his reputation, attacking his character. You know how in the days before uh, any election, those attack ads come out, those smear campaigns that try to, to... corrupt or destroy someone's character so that they will not be elected. Well, they were trying the same thing here with John. They, they said, who do you think you are? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you some other prophet? What gives you the right to be out here preaching to the people and baptizing? The way John responded to these attacks, though, is pretty enlightening for us. It's helpful for us because we know that people attack us for our Christian faith too, right? The way John reacted was by not taking it personally, by not taking offense at these attacks. He did the one thing that we should all do. If someone attacks you for your faith, point to Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about my faith. When you attack Christianity, it's not a personal attack on me. It's with Jesus, and he's the one you have to think about. He's the one you have to worry about. The one who will come again to judge the living and the dead He's really the, the, the one you're attacking here. It's not me. We don't need to take it personally. We just point to Jesus, as John did. And the next day, John would have the opportunity to do more than just talk about Jesus. He actually got to see him in the flesh. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I was talking about when I said, The one coming after me outranks me because he existed before me. I myself did not know who he was, but I came baptizing with water so that he would be revealed to Israel. Now, John and Jesus were actually cousins. And so a fair question would be, how can John say, I didn't know him? I didn't recognize him? Certainly John knew Jesus. What he didn't know, what he couldn't possibly know, was Jesus' true identity and why he had come into this world. Jesus' true identity as the Son of God was hidden under his flesh and blood. The prophet Isaiah in a different chapter said there's nothing about Jesus that would make us or draw us to him. Um, we get the picture there that Jesus was not really a handsome man. He wouldn't be on, on the cover of, of some magazine as a, as a model. There was nothing about Jesus that would mark him as the Son of God. John couldn't have known who he really was until... Jesus was baptized. When God the Father ripped open the heavens and said, this is my Son whom I love, listen to Him, when the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus as a dove, that moment is when John the Baptist's eyes were opened and he saw Jesus for who He truly was. Not just His cousin, not just the Son of Mary, but the Son of God. Which led John to make the further announcement that this is not only the Son of God, He is the Lamb of God. Which brings us back to our original question, right? Why call him a lamb? 
Why not a more regal title as those were, like those that were given in the Old Testament? Why not call him the Messiah or the Christ or at least the Savior? Why the Lamb? Well, understanding this title requires a little bit of a history lesson. So please indulge me as we go back into the Old Testament. Now, our worship here in the New Testament revolves around four basic things. There are only four things you need to worship God in the New Testament. You need the Word. You need some water and some bread and some wine. And if you have that, wherever you have that, in someone's basement, out at a park, or in a beautiful church building, you have the true worship of the one true God. But it was very different in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, their worship revolved around bloody sacrifices, especially the bloody sacrifices of lambs. This was foreshadowed by God already in the Garden of Eden, Remember after Adam and Eve fell into sin and they tried to futilely cover up their shame with fig leaves, the Lord God slaughtered an animal and covered up their shame with its skin. But the slaughter of animals wouldn't become a formal part of Israelite worship until after the Exodus. Remember the Exodus, the Passover, when the angel of death passed over Egypt and and took the life of every firstborn of the Egyptians, but But he passed over. He spared the homes of the Israelites who had slaughtered a lamb and painted its blood on their doorposts. The Lord God commanded that that should become an annual festival for the Israelites. That every year they were to slaughter lambs and eat bread without yeast in it as a reminder that their lives were spared because those thousands of lambs that were slaughtered lost their lives. It continued with, uh, after Mount Sinai, it continued with uh, two, two sacrifices of lambs in Israel each and every day. One in the morning and one in the evening. So if you're just adding up in your mind how many lambs died in Israel every year. You have one each morning and each evening that would add up to over 700. Then you have every family in all of Israel slaughtering a lamb on the Passover. That would be thousands and thousands of lambs. Imagine all that blood. The priests in those days were basically butchers. That's what they spent their day, days doing, slaughtering animals. But that kind of bloody religion is offensive to many people today. That kind of religion doesn't make any sense to many people today. Why should something have to die? But God is sending a very clear message by designing that kind of a bloody sacrificial manner of worship. The message he was sending is that sin is serious. Sin is costly. And the cost of sin is death. Either you die in your sin or something has to die in your place as your substitute. That's where this title Lamb of God comes in. He's called the Lamb of God because God lifted up the the guilt and the shame and the sin that we have earned, that we have committed. He lifts it up off of our shoulders and He puts it on Jesus. This was foreshadowed in another festival in the Old Testament. Maybe you've heard the term Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement. That was the high festival day throughout the entire Israelite calendar. And what would happen is the high priest would take two goats 
And one of the goats he would slaughter, and he would take the blood of that goat and, and sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant to, to hide the sins of the people. But he would then walk out of the holy place, the most holy place, with his hands still covered in blood, and he would put both of his hands on that other goat, and he would confess the guilt of the people of Israel over that goat, and then that goat would be sent out into the wilderness never to be seen again. It symbolized what Jesus came to do. That God has taken the guilt and the shame that we earned, the death we earned, put them on his son and taken away our sin forever. We deserved to be the ones to die for our sin. But Jesus took our place. He was our substitute so that we may be spared. And you're all just sitting there. You're not jumping up and down. You're not giving each other high fives. You're not singing out for joy. I just told you that Jesus is the Lamb of God who has taken away your sin once and for all. You won't have to suffer for it. Eternal life is yours free of charge. And you're just sitting there. I imagine that a touchdown this afternoon in one of the playoff games will generate more excitement than this sweet gospel message has. Why would that be? Why would a football game generate more excitement than the message of free salvation in Christ? If we ever find ourselves indifferent to this message, thinking, eh, I've heard this before, there are probably two reasons for that. The first could be pride. Pride in that the devil has convinced us that while we may be sinners, while we may do some things wrong and tell little white lies and, and have a little bit of lust or greed in our hearts, you know, we're not that bad. I can always turn on the evening news and find someone worse than me. But John said, Jesus is a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you take that backwards, it means that if you're in the world, you have sin. You have sin that needs to be taken away or else you will suffer forever in hell for it. You will die for your sin if it's not taken away before Jesus returns. The other reason we may be indifferent or cold toward the gospel message is because of despair. And no matter how many times the Bible says, and it does so frequently, that Jesus came to save everyone to pay for the sins of the entire world. No matter how many times the Bible says that, the devil is always right there too, and he's whispering in your ear, yeah, that may be true for the people sitting around you. You know, they seem like they're pretty good people. They seem like they have their lives together. Their marriages are strong and healthy. Their families are, are solid. Their children are well-behaved. They seem to be pretty good people, but this isn't for you. No, not after what you did this week. Not after those filthy thoughts that ran through your mind. Not after all the people you've hurt. This sacrifice isn't for you, the devil tries to convince you. Is he right? Do we deserve to have the forgiveness of our sin? Do we deserve to step forward in a few moments to eat and drink the body and blood of the precious, innocent Lamb of God? No. And that's the point. No one does. It wouldn't be forgiveness if you earned it, if you deserved it. It wouldn't be free if you had to pay for it. 
And Jesus told the, the self-righteous Pharisees, those Jewish leaders who thought that they didn't need the forgiveness that he had come to bring, he told them, it's not the, the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. So if you feel the weight of your shame and guilt, if it keeps you up at night, if it makes you struggle to look someone in the eye whom you've sinned against, if you know your sin and you wish to be free from it, if you recognize that in a few moments when you are invited to stand up and come to this table to receive Jesus' true body and blood, if you realize that by standing up, you're not marking yourself as a good person. Instead, you are publicly, you're making a public confession that you are the worst of sinners by coming forward to this table. If you recognize that, then this meal is for you. Because in this meal, Jesus, the Lamb of God, gives you His body and blood to take away all of your sin. Now do you feel like jumping up and down? Giving someone a high five? Well, you can save that for later on in the playoff NFL games. How do we respond, though? If, if jumping up and down and giving high fives isn't the way to respond, how do we respond to this undeserved love? This amazing gift of forgiveness. Well, Andrew provides a pretty good example, doesn't he? John pointed to Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God. And, and Andrew had previously been following John, a disciple of John. Now Andrew follows Jesus. But here's the caveat. There are millions of people throughout the world who claim to follow Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. And Jesus is kind of testing them right before he called them to follow him. He said, what are you looking for? What are people looking for in our world? What do they come to Jesus for? I think in many people's minds, they, they will come to Jesus if he offers them wealth and health and happiness. If he takes away their illnesses and their diseases and whatever bad things are happening in their life. Maybe we sometimes follow Jesus for those reasons. But remember what John said. John did not say that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your poverty or your sadness or your diseases or your pain. He is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. That is why we follow Jesus. There is no guarantee that any of those other things, those other problems will be removed. But when you follow Jesus as the Lamb of God, you know for sure that your sin will be taken away. Follow Him. Follow Him by being in His Word, by meditating on His Word, by hearing His Word, by receiving His sacrament for the assurance of your forgiveness. But it doesn't end there, right? What's the very first thing Andrew did after he started following Jesus? He went and found his brother, Simon Peter. He said, we found the Messiah. He was so excited, he couldn't wait to bring his brother to the Savior as well. Now, this is a, a wonderful example of what sometimes is called witnessing or outreach or evangelism. Whatever you want to call it, this is what it looks like. And I find Andrew's example so refreshing because there's so many burdensome myths out there about outreach, about evangelism. The first myth is that if you want to tell someone about Jesus, they have to be an absolute stranger to you. If you know the person, it doesn't count. You have to find an absolute stranger. That's myth number one. Myth number two is that you have to carefully pander 
to whatever target group you're going after, right? So the idea is like this, that um, millennials need a different message than baby boomers do, than Gen Xers do, right? That uh, it has to be carefully curtailed to them. To, to your target audience, you change the message so that they will hear what they want to hear. That's a myth too. Maybe you've been in places or churches that, that have big outreach programs. And, and so often, they end up being more about us than about the lost sheep that they're intended to find. It's easy for churches to come up with programs that make us feel good, that are really neat, that are really cute, that really make a splash in the community. Maybe that even get us on the Wells Connection, but end up not accomplishing the mission at all. Not touching a single heart with the actual gospel message. Maybe it's handing out candy, maybe it's teaching English or Spanish classes, but if you never get to the gospel, that is a totally useless program. A total waste of time. The fourth myth is that it's all about numbers. Was it all about numbers when it came to Jesus? Look at him here. He started with two. Andrew, and we think it's John, the writer of the gospel, and then added Peter. One by one is how the church is built. One soul at a time, one person at a time is brought to the baptismal font and incorporated into the church. The Lord is not infatuated with numbers like we are because every single soul is precious to him. And Andrew's example dispels those myths, right? You don't have to go looking for an absolute stranger to tell about Jesus. Your mission field is actually not that. Your mission field is the people you already know. For example, you parents, your mission field is your children. That is your primary mission field. Those are the people who need to hear about Jesus from you. It's not about big programs and you don't have to carefully pander to different groups because while you may not know exactly what other people are going through, if they're in this world, there's one thing you know about them. They are a sinner and they desperately need to hear that the Lamb of God takes away their sins. It's not about the numbers. It's about how precious just one soul is in the sight of God. Precious enough that the Son of God, the Lamb of God, shed His blood for that one soul. So where do we find Jesus? If we want to bring others to Him, where do we bring them? If you don't know the answer to that by now, then I have failed you and you should probably fire me. Jesus said, wherever two or three have gathered in my name, there I am with them. Here we have gathered in the name of Jesus, in the name of the triune God around His word and sacrament. We can say beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is here. Here is where Jesus reveals himself. Here is where sinners need to come to receive the forgiveness that he died to win for them. In the past, it's kind of unfortunate. In the past few years, people have kind of pitted outreach versus worship. And the claim is that, well, yeah, it's good that we gather here for an hour on Sundays, but you know what? The real work happens after you go out those doors. The real work goes when you find a perfect stranger and tell them about Jesus whether they want to hear about him or not. 
The fact of the matter is that the whole point of evangelism is to bring people into worship where, where the gifts of God's grace are dispensed through baptism and the word and the sacrament. Outreach and, and worship are not enemies of each other. They work together to bring people to Jesus. You know where to bring them. Bring them here. This is where Jesus is. I know none of that may be exciting as an NFL playoff game that you'll be watching next week. It may not make you want to jump up and down and give somebody a high five and shout for joy. But while the Packers season is over and while we don't know who's going to win or lose today, this truth will not change. Jesus has won the victory. Your sins are forgiven. So even if I don't see you walking out the doors giving high fives to each other, there are a couple things that I would ask you to do today. First, give thanks to God for the John or the Johns in your life. The people who came to you and pointed a finger at Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Give thanks for your parents or your grandparents or your teachers or your pastor who point you to Jesus to lift that burden of guilt off of your shoulders. And second, just think of just one person in your life. Somebody you know who needs to hear that message. Who doesn't know that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Who doesn't know what it means that Jesus is the Lamb of God. You know who Jesus is. You know where He is. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Know Him. Follow Him. Lead others to Him. Amen.